in, in the actual Ferrari house, there's one room, Enzo's study, which has not been touched since he died in 88. Myself, Adam, and Piero were in there. We are just you know, looking at a couple of objects here and there. And I asked, what's that? It was a briefcase with EF on it. He said, well, that's my father's briefcase. I said, what's inside? He said, I never looked. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a former racer turned entrepreneur pushes himself and his drivers to the brink in director Michael Mann's drama, Ferrari. The film tells the story of Enzo Ferrari, who in the summer of 1957 finds his auto empire in crisis. To regain his status, he enlists his team in a treacherous thousand-mile race across Italy. In addition to Ferrari, Mann's extensive directorial credits include the feature films Collateral, Ali, Heat, The Last of the Mohicans, Manhunter, and Thief, the movie for television L.A. Takedown, and the pilots for the series Tokyo Vice and Luck. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures for his 1999 feature The Insider, and won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television for 1979's The Jericho Mile. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mann spoke with director Alejandro Iñárritu about filming Ferrari. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good evening, everybody. It's an honor to be here, Michael. A real honor for me and a joy. Well, thank you. It's great for me to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think my, my first, uh, um, the curious that I have is I know that you have been working and chasing this project for many, many years. I have had, you could talk to me about how long you have been working on this project and can you, I would like to hear what was exactly, I know that you love cars. I know that you have Ferraris. I know that, but I would like to understand what was the first spark and what really got you in the first thing for this project, uh, that the first time. Well, the first spark, the, um, it's everything about the characters, everything about Enzo Ferrari and Lara and Lena and that relationship. Uh, probably the on the surface, the first thing was the kind of strafing wit that he has, a kind of tough modernese, um, kind of caustic, defensive wit and irreverence. Um, and then the then the uh, fact, the very operatic fact, that within those three or four months, all the uh, all these melodramatic dynamics of his life are all coming into collision. Um, the, the death of Dino is fresh, illegitimate. Piero is seeking his father. Laura, who has half the equity in the company, which he needs because the company's going broke, discovers the whole second family right at that moment in time. And um, uh, opera and Modena are as kind of prevalent as race car manufacturers in Modena. So the um, the whole you know, the melodrama, with, with great respect for the term melodrama, of it all, and the um, really grabbed me. 
But then beyond, behind that is that the way these people react the, uh, to these events, the duality of the reactions, the uh, contradictions that are inherent within them are all intact. There really is no character arc. And, um, uh, and that made it resonate with something that feels like real life. And characters and people who have internal contradictions or contradictions among characters, they, they resolve only in movies. They don't resolve in life. We go, we go to our grave with these contradictions. And, um, uh, and so all these characters were, were, were built that way. And that's what uh, this really hooked me into it. Hooked me into it in 1994, 95. And then every time I thought, oh, this is impossible amount, which it was for many, many iterations, I'd, you know, I'd, before I abandoned it, I'd better read the screenplay one more time. I'd get to about page two or three, and I was hooked all over again. <laughs> and uh, I think it's funny because uh, I, I need to confess that uh, Michael invited me to see a kind of a rock, rough cut like maybe six months ago. And I'm not a car guy. And I was super nervous. I was really freaking out. I said, I don't know what I'm going to say. A Ferrari movie. I don't know. I'm not about cars. And people that love cars are very specific and very, you know, like nerds. And I was like freaking out. And the first thing that got my attention in his office is was uh, suddenly I saw a film with this silence and this guy waking up and trying not to, you know, I love that moment that he started pushing his car and, and there's no sound. <laughs> so there was something that really like, wait, wait a minute, I thought that it would be a Michael Mann movie, muscular, boom, boom, boom. And suddenly there was this guy trying to be gentle and silence and there was a softness on, on that kind of beginning. And and then a guy visiting his 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 dead son, and suddenly I remember I said, "Wow, I, I I was not expecting this." And and for me, and today that I saw it again, now finished, uh, it was very emotional because I think that what I understand deeply now is I think is that for me this film is about a character that is what what has lost. It's not what he has. I thought that, you know, normally a Ferrari will be about what he has, all the powers, all the things. But any, obviously for me, it's a film about, because we are what we have lost in our lives. We always pretend not to, but I think that defines us much more, what we have lost, that one we have. And that makes us more vulnerable and more beautiful. And what I love about this character is that, that you present since the first minute, the silence and um, the pain and a broken marriage through the emptiness of the loss that is impossible to describe. And from there, he basically started to play as the last Penelope thing that you have been playing, trying to get everything that we lost. And are, do you agree with me that you, you depart from all the things that were missing from this guy and he's trying to make it up again? Is, is that, is that, did you approach it that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, in that sense. When I say it resonated, it resonated with many things, including true life, and it, and it very much is all about loss. They they, they lost Dino. They lost a year ago. They um, they survived through the war to 1943 when the when the Italian government capitulates, and then the Germans occupied until 1945. Then they have the American occupation, the Dolce Vita, the economic recovery is still. Five years away, 1962, 63. And, um, so everybody, everybody, it was truly about 
what they what they've lost, um, how you handle loss. His uh, he mentions these two close friends of his, uh, Campari and Bozarkini. In fact, that mausoleum we shot is the family mausoleum, and about a hundred feet when you're facing it to the right are the graves of Bozarkini and Campari. So loss, death is prevalent absolutely everywhere, and threat and destruction is prevalent anywhere everywhere. So Enzo. His autobiography is called My Terrible Joy. There's a, it's always a duality. And uh, every time there's some success, he knows, you know, some tragic event is lurking in the shadows right behind me. So he's always on the defensive. Um, and, uh, no, it, it's amazing because I think for me, when, when uh, seeing this film, I think that obviously the car people that love Ferraris and everything, what you build was a character-driven film and almost a car becomes like a dead box all the time. You, you feel the, how fragile it is. And that's in this business, as he said, the terrible joy, which I think is a, is a great line. And there's another line that he said before that was great. Uh, but it becomes about that. And uh, another thing that really is very beautiful is that it could be, uh, you know, you are dealing with these metal power you know, a, a very masculine kind of car thing as you are dealing with these very sensitive issues of loss. And I want to ask you about the one thing that I really admire incredibly is that all around the film, even when you are building toward this competition and all these financial problems and all this, always there's emotion built in it. So, I mean, the structure of the film, even when you are building the tension of a, there's always uh, threats and hooks of emotional attachment to each and every character, which I think that's fascinating for me, you know? Uh, uh, what, what I want to say is uh, if the, the, the driver that lies, the, there's, there, there's this, you know, he cannot be in this car race physically because there was no cell phones and there was no communication, but then you are building that the guy is probably the guy caught, you know, the, the guy that is offering him, offering the money for the company, the motion, then he visit her. And then the other guy with the, with, with the, with the girlfriend. So even with that, you are always threading emotion was your focus. It's a very emotional film, right? Um, yeah, it is. It's raw. And, um, and in fact, some of the emotions to go back to the last thing we we're talking about, the, the, I viewed, um, and then so did Adam and Penelope, the stasis that they're in, and that scene when the confrontation, when she's after she's discovered the second family, as something that reveals the basic idea about the characters that the loss of Dino has imprisoned Lara in the past. She can't move into the present whatsoever. She's operating within a prison and is trying to maintain some made-up constructed rules of behavior within a prison. Enzo is in his own silo, and for him, the loss has rooted him in the present, but only only looking to the future. Everything is the future. When you're when he's asked, what's the, of all the cars you've built, what's the what, what's, what's your favorite? The next one. It's constantly, and he changed the facade, small things. He changed the facade of that factory every single year, new signage, new everything. So he was constantly pushing, push, you know, pushing into the, into the, you know, into the future. Um, what, was your, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, you, you have just answered how they were dealing oh, with yeah, pain. Oh, yeah, So the, the, um, 
you know, it, it's so natural to me now because uh, having spent so many years on this and also understanding modernistic culture and how opera works on audiences. The Storky Opera is the opera next door to the house. And um, the, um, you know, it happens, I particularly picked that aria, which is also about loss. The uh, father talks his son into abandoning his true love because she's not worthy. She's long class. He does. He then regrets it, but finds out that she's dying and he changes his mind. He goes to the city. He tells her, we'll go to Paris. You'll be happy. You'll be wonderful. You'll be healthy. And of course, they won't. He's too late. She's going to die. That's, that's the trajectory of life and missing, being out of sync with, you know, time. And, uh, you know, that's characteristic of, um, you know, of everything that, that happens. So all the raw emotionality is, uh, is what was also so appealing to me. It's fantastic. I, just an example before we go to another thing is uh, uh, you personally, I never respond to uh, flashbacks, for example. Flashbacks always for me, sometimes in the screenplay, if when somebody use flashbacks as a narrative tool to feel information about somebody, for me, it, there's, a, there's something that I sometimes doesn't feel that is necessarily and sometimes it's overused because I couldn't solve something of the story. So then I have to give information of the past or... But I think what I love about the, the flashback, the only flashback that I think it was very amazing for me is the way you use it because it was not a narrative flashback. It was an emotional flashback that did not give me any information that I needed. It's just this yeah. opera moment that we all have. Music yeah. put you in a moment that you remember. Emo the emotional truth of the characters was that you were not building narratively things. You... And, and I, it, that's a very beautiful, and you use it only one time, and it's amazing. I don't know how, how you arrived to that decision. Right. I, I've never been attracted to opera, and I had to figure out how opera works. And um, what, I, what I decided is that it's, it's, it's uh, first of all, the stories, like the Traviata, are actually very realistic. But the, the, um, the, the overexpression, expressiveness of it, the, the operatic, if you like, you know, technicolor display of emotionality, falls upon the audience, and the audience is just static. They're just there. This falls upon them, and it sends them into their own, into their own recollections, into their own thoughts, their memories. It evokes emotions. So one of the things I wanted to do was shoot the opera singers as if they were the principals in the scene. So they're shot in kind of a cinema verite way where the camera's right underneath them. You see the raw hot lights on them. And the, the, uh, our characters are static, and thinking, and then we go into again, just these these fractals of emotion, um, and um, particularly Adel Gisa, who was unrelentingly mm -hmm. tough-minded, uh, tough-minded woman. And and I want to say about the the, the grammar that you use uh, uh, visually. I will say that it, the the photography is fantastic of Eric. I think uh, all the production design, but I think that there's these. I, I remember I asked you what lenses you use because you you use this incredible wide close lens here that it reminded me like the insider when you were trying to get into the mind and the soul of somebody which I think you got uh, especially that moment when when Penelope gave him the money with that condition and he arrived almost to kiss the camera you said wait wait wait, wait you want to go out but it's suddenly we are inside what he's feeling but the 
the way you shot it, the, 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 the grammar, the, the, the architectural visual experience of the film put me back in those mom, in that time. So, uh, how did you work with Eric? How was the design of that? Did you storyboard everything? Did you, you were inspired in some old movies or in that period? Because it's it's very elegantly shot, very uh, very very faithful to that time, you know. Oh, there was a uh, this very specific plan which started. Uh, I wanted very classical, static um, compositions, mostly in the in the dialogue scenes, and let the uh, you know, this is a question we all ask ourselves. Here's the scene. Here's the action. Here's what I want audience to feel at the end of it. Uh, the scene with the confrontation between the two of them. We have to reveal that you know it's it's uh, uh, the most maximum uh, irresolution possible, which comes from her condemning him for the death of Dino because he was distracted. So. You know, our son Dino is getting weaker while your co-piloter, your co-driver, son like a vampire was getting stronger. I mean, in the way she talks about it. But I wanted the um, uh, those environments to be monochromatic, in in typical modernese colors, of burnt umbers, browns, and there was not a lot of color contrast. And then the partial resolution of these dramatic and highly emotional um, conflicts and stakes. It's going to play out in racing, and for that, I want everything to be like I know racing is, which is kinetic, in a word, agitation, and to uh, subjectify audience and put them into the cars was the idea. And here you have these primary reds slashing across the screen, and um, so that was the basic that was the basic design of it. Um, the uh, the lighting's influenced by um, uh, Caravaggio. Uh, you know, and to me, what was beautiful about the lighting in Caravaggio was that he, he lights a space, and then a part of a person happens to be hit by the light. It's all contrived, but that's what it feels like. So there's a reality to it, as well as a very Renaissance uh, quality. And so that's basically what we did. So there's light in a room, and then the actor may walk in it, may walk out of it. You know, so. it was very beautiful. Beautiful explanation of what of that 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 that, that thinking. And the masterful um, uh, moment of that car crash at the end. Because, I mean, I think it's, it's, so, it's such a master, Mr. Michael Mann, about just that little detail. Uh, I remember in your office, we were seen in a little monitor, and I jump, and it was not even the sound design, and I jump again, because you have this kind of... Uh, uh, um, shot of the car, and then you stay just for one second, and you show us five seconds before what and we said well that's normal those kind of things and then it's five seconds later ooh, silence and it's just like the the voice of that sound and you said you know what will happen but you tell us three seconds or microseconds and then we jump right. is that something that you planet that I'm, I'm talking as a director is very impressive that moment is the the, the domain of the language and did you plan that in your head before, or you find it half in the editing? How, how did you plan that moment? Um, one thing I wanted, is, I wanted the uh, the truth of what happened to just present itself very indexically without uh, a lot of fast cutting or nifty camera angles and talking about the crash itself. And um, there's a uh, there's a famous crash at Le Mans in '55, and what's so horrifying about it 
is that a cameraman happened to be photographing the whole thing, and he with a 50 millimeter lens, he just pans across what happens, and so your attention goes is riveted inside the frame, and that's what, that's what I wanted, just the truth of what happens. Now, the other the other the other thing is I always research these things and go deeply into it and try to find out what happened because usually I find something there that's better than what I could make up. So the uh, a guy named Gabriele Lali, who's uh, uh, one of the people who runs the Classique, or the restoration department at the factory, we got a tremendous amount of help from the factory, um, went into the uh, Mantua Prefecture, where Widerzola, the accident happens at Widerzola, and dug down into their storage and got the actual police reports and files, the results of a two-year investigation. And that's how we know exactly what happened. They had diagrams and blueprints, and then we, uh, the car component is all practical. So we probably destroyed seven or eight Miatas to try getting them to, getting, to, to set up the rig for that car to do, do what it did. So that's exactly, what uh, you know? What you're saying? The telephone pole, the wires. Maybe the wires may have caught him. We're not in half. We're not sure. But then when we went to Widersola itself to see the where the crash was, exactly the same layout: farmhouse, little walkway, ditch, straight road. We were there, and um, an elderly gentleman came out of the house, go shopping with his wife with a cane. He asked us we were do what we we're doing. We we told him, and he said, "Well, I was there." And, um, and he said we were having our family dinner. At about 3, we started hearing the first cars come through. That was always 20 minutes from the end of the race of Russia. We heard the first cars come through. My older brother, who was 9, ran out. He was much faster than me. I was 3. He's a toddler. And he ran out. And his older brother got to the edge of the road and got killed. It's one of the nine people who got killed. And um, so that became the inspiration for having the, the whole family, the family scene. And um, yeah. Well, I think, as we know, I think every film of yours is so detail-oriented. You are between a journalist, a documentarist, an anthropologist. I know that I was enjoying every detail of your film, even that little moment of this the faces of every extra and every guy. And then there's the banana moment that then the, the guy go to the banana and give it to the kid and the kid is happy for the banana. It's such a beautiful detail about the times. They were after the war and the kid is just hungry for a banana that you will never see that now. Anyway, all of the, and then every car is perfectly dressed with the amount of oil and, and, and dirt and, you know, uh, uh, the obsession of to get that right. But my question is creatively, the emotionally how you threat that little family that is presented three minutes before, you get in love with one shot. You do a round shot of the table, then the girl, you know, laughing about, oh, the kids wants to go, and you kill our hearts with one moment. You build emotion in a terrifying thing without overdoing it or... And at the same time, technically, my question is, in two shots, you solve one of the most spectacular and at the same time, simple car crash. Because knowing you from Miami Vice, you can do 40 shots, right? When I was John and I was seeing your TV show, I was like, wow, the coolest guy. But now, as a great master, 
he just take the brush and do this and this, and there's a bull, and there's a dancer. So, I mean, it's, you, you know, when there's masters of painting with three things they do, I think this is one of those things. With three shots, all this information that you told us, you, with three strokes, you do one of the incredible moments of car crash. You know? oh, thank you. <laughs> so, well, you are welcome. I think you agree with me, right? There's um, also, there's also where, you know, I mean, part this, is, this is planned. It wasn't by accident that uh, I wanted, I shot the whole film in, in, in Modena, in Maranello. Everything was real, you know, where it happened. Um, and what happens is an osmosis that occurs for everybody, myself, the cast, the crew, that it just kind of filters up all this reality and the... Um, and it's there everywhere. So we were fortunate enough to swim in this deep pool for you know for six months. The guy who you're talking about who gave the banana to, to the kid is Nicky Lauda's ex-chief mechanic. Oh, really? really. <laughs> he and has that face. The, <laughs> the other mechanic who you see a lot, particularly in Rome, is Michael Schumacher's ex-chief mechanic. So all the mechanics are worked in the in the race in the racing department of the factory. And they all speak a Modernese dialect that is impossible to understand to the Italians. So, <laughs> so that when Scaglietti, the coach builder, uh, who's the son of a bricklayer, when he was interviewed on Italian television, it's all subtitled in Italian because nobody can understand it. <laughs> but you're, 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 you know, you, how much you imbibe from being within a culture like that as a filmmaker and all, you start seeing all the layers and all the possibilities, of, you know, which are, which I know you know all about, is, uh, you know, it's fortunate. It's the, best, it's the best way to make a film, so. I know, I know. I'm glad that you said because I, I was about to tell you who is that casting director of extras. He's the best actress ever. Now, they are, I know who they are now. But, uh, but uh, uh, I want to say the the period film like this is very challenging because you are new to the film in the Roman Empire or something like that. You are doing a film that is, you know, very italy you know, you can find Italy like that, but obviously it's full of Starbucks and shit like that. What was your challenges in the production design if it was very challenging to, you know, to the to depict the period of time visually in Italy, in, in Modena? The, the period of Modena is, looks exactly like it did in 1957. Wow. Uh, That's great. When, except for all the, you know, street furniture, all the signage and stuff like that and a couple of shop fronts. So... Um, uh, it, and it's all within like 500 meters of Enzo's house. So he walks out of his house, he goes around the corner, there's the barbershop, it's the real barbershop. That's exactly what it was in 57. He's sitting in the chair and getting a shave that Enzo said, and the guy shaving him is the son of the barber who shaved Enzo. Wow. So everything <laughs> is like, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it was all it's all right there. But the... Um, did you have some challenges about the the with the with the family with Piero and with the sons? I mean, is there was some limits, or you have a free way to go and do? I mean, the, how did you manage? I would like to say uh, the the uh, the life of somebody in a book, and then to edit what you wanted. Right. And did you have complete freedom to make an interpretation? How, how much you have to betray a real life in order to? To make a good film, uh, that, that my question. How, how was your process with this film? It, um, I was a beneficiary of a lot of trust from Piero. I've known him for twenty years, and um, it took me forever to get him to read the screenplay because I didn't want to read the screenplay. He trusted me to make the movie. Uh, I, I wanted him to read the screenplay. I wanted, I wanted detail. I wanted color. I wanted to ask him things. And finally, about 
three months before we started shooting, he, he read it. And um, that's basically it. I mean, he, uh, we knew each other. He, he was trusting. And he was obviously incredibly anxious because it's a movie about basically him as a 12-year-old illegitimate boy. The, the term in Italian is the son in waiting, the son in the second family. Vittorio De Sico also had the second family. Waiting for maybe the father will come home. Maybe the father will acknowledge you. Maybe he won't. So it's a terribly insecure um, you know, uh, upbringing that he had. And here we're displaying everything. Um, he happens to like the film a lot. He's seen it about six or seven times. It brings all his friends, so that's good. But um, uh, no, when I, I learned, we learned things. There was so much, so much depth when you get into a real life like this. We, there's one. Is in, in the actual Ferrari house, there's one room, Enzo's study, which has not been touched since he died in 88. And um, myself, Adam, and Piero were in there. We're just, you know, looking at a couple of objects here and there. And I asked, what's that? It was a briefcase with EF on it. He said, oh, that's my father's briefcase. I said, what's inside? He said, I never looked. Wow. So the, the fact that he never, you know, for 30 what, 35 years, he never looked and opened the briefcase. And we opened the briefcase at that moment. And then there was a cabinet with Enzo's diaries in it. Every single day since 1933, all in this perfect penmanship like a draftsman, which is another part of the contradictory nature about Enzo I found so fascinating is that he has a mind like a precision engineer. He has a, He's like a metronome in terms of getting things done on schedule and handwriting's perfect, all rational, all logical, when it had to do with racing, with the cars, like that. In his personal life, complete libidinous chaos, as if a ship had lost its rudder. Um, you or I may ask ourselves, should I do this or not do this? Enzo would ask himself, why wouldn't I? I mean, it's, um, so there's, um, uh, there's also fast, you know, fascinating, but that's the, but it was, um, no, it was a, it, it's a terrific relationship. One of the things we learned, where did your father sleep? He slept in a very thin, very narrow bed. Here's the kind of pajamas he wore, and it was in the front room. It wasn't in the bedroom, because by this that point in time, Laura had said, you get the small room, I get the big bedroom, and I can control the money. <laughs> so this is, but, um, you know, and so here's a man who, in in 1957, as well as in later years, in the 60s, was this gigantic representational figure, this inscrutable icon, which is all design and tactics, and um, and the domestic life behind that is so kind of ordinary and pedestrian, you know, and 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 odd in wonderful ways, but. It's amazing because it's very hard to find now film that has these, uh, the definition of reality is paradox and contradiction, right? And without that, there is, it's not real. It's an illusion. We want to believe in a world that there is no contradiction, there is no friction, there is no duality. That's the problem we are now in the world. <laughs> but when you see somebody like that, it's for me funny that it's almost like an anti-hero movie in a way that the guy is lying, the guy is cheating, has another family, he manipulated that, he, he put people in danger, that, that, but you love him. And you understand exactly what what he lost, what he's empty, what he would like to, what, what he's trying to reveal. He's in willfully denial about the present and the thing, and then he's going to the future, 
But that's the human experience of, of most of us in many, many times that we have to navigate with contradictions. So I love that. And I know that we have to finish, but I would like just to, if you can tell me a little bit, because the performance of all the actors, but uh, Adam Driver and, and Penelope are fantastic. I really, truly, I think Adam, the, the constraint that he has, that coldness or engineer, and at the same time, emotional truth with that restraint. And Penelope, always like a fragile kind of people that is about to lose. How was that building and relation with the actors? Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, it started with, um, you know, it was a typical, first of all, it was a very, um, like an ensemble company. Everybody was the... Um, there was enough of a frontier and enough of a challenge to generate a very healthy kind of insecurity about a, this really is going to take a lot of work to get absolutely right and uh, and get right to not only an Italian audience but a Modernese audience. And so the um, uh, start, started with a real understanding of biography. Who, who was he? You know? And so there's a core to Enzo. He was sitting on a bench in the in the uh, snow in a park in uh, 1918. Uh, he had lost his father a year earlier, his brother a year earlier. It was just he and his mother. There, there wasn't much money. He had a spotty education, and he set his dreams on a, on a job with Fiat, and he had just been turned down. And so he goes and sits in the snow and cold on a bench, and as he writes in his autobiography, he says, I openly wept. And then he gathered himself and he said, who shall I be in this world? And that question is, is rom romantic. It's the notion that I can transcend my circumstances and I can be, make myself into whatever I want to make myself to be. And given the, the static class hierarchies of Italy in 1918, that, that's an insane idea. It's like being... In, in uh, 1970, I want to be an astronaut and go to the moon. Um, and then he wanted to be a race car driver. And that's what he became and was in the 1920s. And then everything else followed. So at the core of Enzo, this is Adams and I, our, under, our understanding is important to get, is this romantic drive uh, to, be, to be aspirational. And, um, uh, and, he, and he was his whole life with full awareness because there's no Pollyanna in, in this, and full awareness that that hostility, challenges, competition is right around the corner. Uh, for for so it's understanding that, and then all the work that um, that all the work that was done in how he looked, how he walked, how he breathed, uh, um, you know, and, and having that that healthy defensive attitude of Enzo's that no matter. How good something is, you know, somebody's about to attack you from here or there. It's, it's there in his dialogue with the reporters. You know, when, when we win, I can't see my shots, my cars for shots of stars. He asks, when we lose your lynch bob, it's enough to make the Pope weep. You know, I mean, that's the, Penelope was, um, her character, Laura, was, uh, LaDonna Buffa, kind of a card. That's what, that's, that's what, she was called in, in a, again, in the 1920s in turn when Enzo met her. She was vivacious. She was extroverted. She was singing in cafes. And um, she pawned his wedding gift without him asking her to, to help build their very first car in 1947 because of the 10% deposit, and they didn't have any money to pay for the rest of the components. And uh, six races later, that car won the Rome Grand Prix. 
And um, uh, so she was this, she was the exact opposite. She was self-confident. She was primal when she believed a thing was a certain way. We'd say that's, well, you're thinking metaphorically. That's not really the way it is. No. <laughs> it's your fault Dino died. That's it, you know. Um, and, um, and that, and we would then have um, surprises that would, that would occur. I was able to track down Laura's doctor who showed us letters that Enzo wrote to her. They were uh, affectionate and romantic in 1977, two years before she dies. And um, so it became a, you know, an access into, into who she was. We went into the apartment and uh, Penelope and I walked into this bedroom where she spent the last two years of her life because she was invalided at the end and saw this insane wallpaper. It was fabric that had covered everything. It was the bedspread, the curtains, the walls. It's the paper you, wall, paper, wall covering you see here. And because of what Penelope and I knew by that time, it kind of took our breath away because it was as if she was trying to remind herself of a certain vivacious, uh, you know, lust for life that she had, that she had, had when she was uh, when she was young. So all of these things, along with all the stuff that we know we do, you know, breaking down scenes and and I keep looking for, um, you know, uh, what, what's more than they cooking? So Penelope, cooking. I mean, it has to be actionable stuff and not just you know gratuitous activities. But there's a kind of a curriculum of things to get into the uh, get into it. Now, Penelope's done Italian films in Italian, so she's familiar with Italian culture. Um, and now, and Shailene, Lena Lardy was harder because she's kind of an Ingrid Bergman um, figure. She was very, very contemporary. She came from an upper middle class family. Ever there was a, there was trouble in her community in Castelvetro because of the situation with Enzo. All her siblings and family stood by her. Um, and she, that house is where Enzo took important. If he had important customers who came in, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. He always took them home to Lena Lardy's for food. So anytime you see, the only time you see pictures of Enzo kind of on the, on the grass with his shirt open, it's at, uh, it's at that house. Um, but the, as dense and rich as that is in the media Romagna, that, that culture, I think would drive most of us nuts because the, you know, it's to, to, to be in one place and not want to go anywhere else because they didn't. Um, Enzo stopped going to races. He just would sit with Scaglietti by the two of them and listen to races on, on the radio or watch it on TV. Um, the sedentariness of it, um, I, maybe, I, maybe I find it so interesting because it's so alien to what most of us are, are used to because everybody in LA is from somebody, someplace else. And, nobody, and for more than no one's from someplace else. So. Well, I know that I need to, we need to wrap it. Yeah. I could have talked with you for, we could have been, we could be here for hours, but it was a fantastic job uh, of everybody. Congratulations, Michael. Thank you. For Thank you very time. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.